Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our 2023 Lent sermon series, Seven Deadly Sins, The Power of God to Move Us from Death to New Life. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. So throughout the season of Lent, we are taking time to look at the seven deadly sins because they show us the orientation of our hearts, whether our hearts are focused in on ourselves, which ultimately leads us to isolation and death, or whether our hearts are focused outward toward God and other people living in the new life that's offered to us by the Holy Spirit and made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Came across a quote this week in a book called Against God and Nature, A Doctrine of Sin by Tom McCall. Sounds like exciting reading, doesn't it? 400 pages on the doctrine of sin. Anyway, he says it this way. He said, to study sin theologically is to come to a deeper understanding of oneself. To truly know sin is to know the sinner introspectively. But it is not only that. We can begin to understand sin rightly only in relation to God. And thus to know sin better is to know God better. To understand sin is to better understand the righteousness, justice, and holiness of God. And to better understand sin is to better understand the glorious mercy of the triune God whose nature is holy love. So we're looking at sin in these weeks so we can better understand who God is and who God is not. And so we can know what it is that God is saving us from. Last week we looked at the sin of envy and how we can only begin to fight against that instinct to compare ourselves with those around us when we have a firm foundation, a firm understanding of our value and worth and status in Christ. And when we choose to look with gratitude at what we have received, but also what God is doing in other people, being thankful for what God's doing in other people, even if it's different than what he's doing in us, rather than being envious of God's goodness and generosity to others. So last week was envy. This week, we're gonna talk about gluttony. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about the seven deadly sins, I think it's easy to think in terms of caricatures, right? Cartoonish exaggerations that focus on the extremes. I think that's going to be especially true of gluttony. When we think about a person seated at a table with you know, a fork in each hand, right, just ready to, to go at it. I remember one time 
in, in my own life. I was probably about 17. And we had had some kind of event at our home. My, my mom had made cream puffs, which were about the size of a golf ball, maybe a little bigger, you know, just a, a nice size cream puff, a nice crispy shell, custard inside, a sprinkling of powdered sugar on the outside. You got the picture in your mind, right? And there were just trays of these cream puffs. And afterward, we were sitting there and, and there was probably about half a tray or a tray of them left over. And, and sitting there with me was, was a friend of mine who's been a friend since we were about 16. And uh, we were looking at the cream puffs. There were probably about 40 or so of them. I said, bet you I can eat more of those than you can. So we started going back and forth, one for one, till we ate all 40-some cream puffs. And we felt so sick, so sick. Gluttony, right? And that's what we often think about gluttony, is just eating more and more and more because it gives us pleasure. It gives us a sense of satisfaction, but it's not always a desire for pleasure that, give, that drives us to that kind of gluttony, right? It could be something like competition or stress or any number of things. And so I, I wanna talk a little bit today about what gluttony is, because we think of it as just this excessive consumption, right? We just eating all the food, stuffing ourselves, eating more than we need to eat. And gluttony is certainly that. But I don't think gluttony is only that. I don't think it's, one, I don't think it's limited to food. I think gluttony can come from consuming anything that gives us some kind of physical comfort or pleasure. But it's also not just about excessive consumption. So in her book, uh, Glittering Vices, author Rebecca DeYoung says we can think about gluttony using an acronym of the word fresh, right? And I think, Phil, could we put that up there, fresh? Uh, and so there are five different ways we can think about gluttony. We can think about gluttony as consuming too fastidiously, too ravenously, too excessively, too sumptuously, or too hastily, all right? All these words that we use in our everyday conversation with each other and, you know, no. So, so what do these ideas mean? What does gluttony look like beyond just excessively? I think we can pretty well understand that one, and maybe hastily, right? We're eating so fast that we don't even take time to enjoy or give thanks for the food that we're eating. But, but what about fastidiously? That's not often a word we would associate with uh, the sin of gluttony. But when we eat in such a way too fastidious, too daintily, too focused in on what we prefer and our particularities, even though that seems contrary to what we think of as gluttony, I think it is. I think it is. And uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which if you've never read it, it's, it's a fascinating read. Anyone here ever read The Screwtape Letters? A few of you. 
This is written in the form of, of letters from Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. Now, Screwtape and Wormwood are demons. And uh, Wormwood is a fresh demon right out of training, and he's been assigned to his first human to tempt his human. And so he, he wrote to his uncle and asked for advice, and, and these letters are screw tape, his uncle's advice to him about how he can effectively tempt his human. And in uh, one of these letters, he says this. He says, my dear Wormwood, the contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the greatest achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject so that by now you'll hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. This has largely been affected by concentrating all our efforts on the gluttony of delicacy, not the gluttony of excess. He says, your, your own patient's mother, as I learned, is a good example. She would be astonished. One day, I hope she will be to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality. He goes on to say that the reason she's going to be so surprised is because she never eats to excess. excess. In fact, the problem is when someone brings her food, it just needs to be just so. He goes, he said, this woman is in what may be called the all I want state of mind. Just all she wants is a cup of tea, properly made, or an egg, properly boiled, or a slice of bread, properly toasted. But she can never find any servant or friend who can do these simple things properly because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatal pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past. See, this woman he's talking about, she's so fixated on, on exactly how things need to be that it's not a matter of how much she's eating, but she's become so fastidiously preoccupied with what she wants in a meal or in a tea or what have you, that that food has become her sole focus. So we can fall into gluttony when we consume too fastidiously, but also when we consume too ravenously. Some of you know that we have teenage boys living in our home. They're our sons. Um, they're not just random teenage boys. Um, but this is what we often would associate with teenage boys who come home hungry from a day of school and sports practice, right? They come home and they just pile up the plate, right? And they just eat without even thinking about who else might need to eat from that meal or something along those lines. It's, it's the one who goes up and gets seconds at the church potluck before everyone has even had a chance to go through the line. We can eat too ravenously without a concern for other people who might need to eat as well. Excessively, 
You, you get the picture of that one. That's what we commonly think of when we think of gluttony. But we can also consume too sumptuously. And when we consume too sumptuously, our focus is on luxury, a demand for only the best. You know, someone who considers themselves a connoisseur of, of fine things or, you know, a foodie um, who is, is always wanting to eat just the very best things. It doesn't necessarily matter how much of something they get to eat. They just want to eat the very best. And their focus is on eating what will bring them the most pleasure. But then we can also eat too hastily, Right? eating without even taking time to enjoy the food, eating without taking time to be grateful for the food or to enjoy the presence of those who we are with. All those five things, as different as they sound, I think they all fall under this idea of gluttony. You see, because the focus in all of them is on my pleasure, my gratification, my satisfaction. And it always takes just a little more to get that same good feeling. In each of these different ways that I've described gluttony, the preoccupation, the fixation is on the food and ordering our lives around the next meal we're going to eat or the next uh, snack we're going to have or the next restaurant we're going to visit, either because we're living in excess or because we're living in deficiency, right? Both extremes can lead us to a form of gluttony, even if on the deficiency side, even if that gluttony only looks like a piece of celery and a spoonful of cottage cheese, right? We've all been around those friends who are so focused in on their diet that they know exactly how many grapes are in their little container they're allowed to have at their next snack or exactly what they're going to eat at each hour of the day. That can be gluttony, even though it looks different than sitting down and eating half a pizza, which I was informed by one of my sons was not gluttony last night. Um, he said you have to eat far more than that for it to be gluttony. But either way, our food, our focus is on our food. Our focus is on what we're consuming that gives us pleasure. But food can also be uh, an area of life that we go to for relief or comfort, right? Something we go to when we've had a long, stressful day. Ice cream, right here. I joke that it's one of my love languages, but um, it's probably one of my gluttony languages, if I'm honest. Ice cream can be a good thing, right? We can go and we can celebrate. We can have you know, cake and ice cream together with people at a birthday, you know, pie and ice cream at Thanksgiving. You're spending time together. You go to a ball game. You get an ice cream cone. You go to the boardwalk. Ice cream, if, if you're not picking up, I really do love ice cream. Um, but ice cream can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending on what drives us to the ice cream. It can become something that we go to when we're stressed or afraid or whatever. And anything we go to for comfort before we go to God 
can become an idol. Anything we look to to give us that hit of dopamine that we get when we experience pleasure can become an issue for us. Like with any addiction, eventually we need more and more to feel that same amount of pleasure and it robs us of the pleasure that we felt at the beginning. So ice cream can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing as much as I hate to admit it. See, the reality about gluttony is that we're trying to satisfy a spiritual hunger inside of us with a physical food. There are longings within us that can never be satisfied by even the best ice cream, I'm telling you. The best we can hope for is that that, that hunger or that, that those hunger pains and, and those longings will be numbed for a moment or dulled by a physical pleasure. But Jesus said in the Beatitudes, which are the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, that those who will be filled aren't those who try to eat more good food or better food, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for holiness. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Because that's the deep longing in our heart, right? We're not really hungry for that cheeseburger or the ice cream or the candy bar. We're hungering for something of God. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount in the passage that Jeremy read for us this morning, chapter six, beginning in verse 25. And he's telling the people, he says, you don't have to worry about your food. Right, And he's got that whole bit about the, the birds of the air. They don't farm, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store up. But God takes care of their food and the flowers of the field. Their clothes are taken care of. He says, so you don't have to worry. Because worry is just another word for, for a preoccupation, right? A fixation. We, we fixate on those things that we're worried about. Now, Jesus isn't saying that Food and clothing are unimportant. He's not saying that our physical bodies don't matter, but that these things need to be kept in their proper perspective. There's more to life than just eating and drinking because we live with a view not just to earthly pleasures and earthly things and physical realities. We live with a view toward eternity. If we live as if the only thing that matters are the next meal we're gonna eat, we're living like the pagans who are only focused on the here and now. Jesus said they run after all those things, good food, good drink, fine clothes. Paul talks about this a little bit in Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse 17, he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live like we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. 
and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship, it's in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He'll transform our lowly bodies so that we might be, they will be like his glorious body. See, Paul's saying, follow our example. We're focused on the ultimate things. He had just given them a whole list of things in his earthly life that he had done that made him a good Jew. And he said, all of that, none of it matters. None of that matters. I consider it garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. He says, my eyes are fixed on Christ. My eyes are fixed on heaven. So follow my example. Live as a citizen of heaven, even though we also have to find a way to live as citizens of the earth. So, but there's a difference between living on earth with our eyes set on heaven and our eyes set on earthly things like the pagans who are looking at things with worldly eyes. He says, for them, their God is their belly. They've become slaves to their desires. Flipping back to Jesus and Matthew, he says, we've got to seek first after God. We've got to seek first after his kingdom because Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, right? That's what Paul said. He's in heaven and everything is under Jesus's control. That includes our desires and our hungers and our longings. There is no physical desire that is beyond Jesus's ability to transform. And when we view everything in light of God's kingdom, God's nature and his character, his life that he wants to pour into us when our needs and our desires are in their proper perspective, God will take care of the rest. So how do we join God in the work of transformation that he wants to bring in our lives to rightly order those desires so that our lives can be transformed to be like his glorious body? How can we bring everything under his control, even in our own bodies? I think to start, we have to acknowledge that food isn't really the issue, right? It's not about what we're eating or even how much we're eating. God made food to be enjoyable. And as I've shared in other messages, it's an important way that we interact with one another and we build bonds with one another. We share a meal together. We celebrate together. It's not about the food. It's not about the pleasure or the desire that's the issue. God created food. He created pleasure. He created these desires. We're not trying to live this excessively ascetic life in which we try to crush every desire that rises up inside of us. We're not trying to kill every longing for pleasure, everything that gives us desire or pleasure. That's not the life we're called to. The issue is fixing our eyes on what is ultimate, what is eternal, what is heavenly. It's about seeking God first and letting him rightly order all our other desires. One of the ways we do that is by 
embracing healthy rhythms in our lives. And I think healthy rhythms include both fasting and feasting right? Both are important to our life with God. If you look all through the Old Testament, the the Israelites were given feast after feast that they were to observe every year, times they were to get together and eat a lot of food. Have you ever tried to eat a whole lamb as a family? That's a lot of food. Feasting is important. Fasting is is important. There are appropriate times for both of those. And the, the church calendar helps us with this, right? Lent and Advent each year, they're, they're seasons of fasting and reflection and preparation. But what about when we're not in a season of fasting and we're not in a season of feasting, right? Because it's not just one or the other. There's normal time, there's ordinary time. And in those seasons, we need to embrace temperance or moderation and self-control, right? One of the fruit of the spirits that Paul lists. One of the things that's produced when the new life of God is lived in us, when we abide in him, when the life of God is flowing into us like the sap flows into a branch from the vine and that branch produces fruit. We've got to live in moderation. We've got to live with self-control, controlling our, our appetites, eating in a way that contributes to our physical health. We can contrast that with the way the worldly cycle looks, right? This rhythm of fasting and feasting and normal time moderation. If we were to allow our desires to run uncontrolled, it would look like ever-increasing obsession, either with more excess or with more extreme deficiency and denial. Or it would look like the yo-yo cycle of overindulgence and excessive dieting that we often fall into at this time of year after we went through the holiday season and put on too much weight and started our New Year's resolution and started dieting and now we're probably all on the uptick again. Thank you, Valentine's Day. But the reality is our desire, our hunger for physical pleasures, they're supposed to be warning lights. They're supposed to be indicators that show us that there's these longings for physical pleasure that we will never be able to satisfy. They show us, C.S. Lewis says, not here in Screwtape Letters, but in another writing, that we were made for another world. We were made for another reality, which, which we know to be heaven, but not heaven for heaven's sake. Heaven because in heaven will be in the presence of God. So when we come home from work, stressed at the end of the day, and we reach for the ice cream in the freezer, or we have a fight with a friend and we grab the bottle of wine, or we're worrying about the decisions we know we'll have to make somewhere down the road and we switch on Netflix and start watching so we don't have to think about what is really going on in life. We need to be aware that what we really need won't be found in the freezer or the bottle or on the screen 
because our hearts were made for God. And as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. When we pull the ice cream out of the freezer, turn on the TV, it's a check engine light. It's an indicator that we need to ask God what that desire in and ask him to fill that need in our heart. So this morning as we close, to put it in Rebecca DeYoung's words again, the question is not whether we are fat or thin, polite or impolite, but whether we are eating to satisfy our own wants in a way that elevates our own satisfaction above all other good things. So I want to invite you to take a moment to pray as we end this service, to ask God if there's anything in your life that you're looking to, to satisfy the desire that can only be satisfied by him. Is there any pleasure that you're focusing on that's keeping you from seeking him first? Anything you're preoccupied with or fixated on? Because his presence, he longs to fill us with his presence. And if there is anything that's keeping you from seeking him first this morning, anything you're looking to for comfort or relief, you can lay it down today. You can ask God to bring his transforming grace even to that area of your heart and life, even to that area of longing and hunger. Traditionally, Lent is a season of fasting. We often give something up in this season of Lent. But the goal in that isn't just to prove that we have the willpower to make it through for 40 days. The goal is to practice saying no to our bodies, to say, practice saying no to our desires so that we don't become a slave to our bellies, so that we can be free to say yes to God. I'm gonna invite you to stand. Aaron and the team are gonna come. We're gonna sing something. Come to the altar. And if you're, if you have something that God's shining a light on in your heart, in your life, that you need to lay down because it's keeping you from seeking him first, if there's something in your life that you're going to before you go to God for comfort, for relief, you can bring it to him. You can come and pray at this altar. You can use the seat where you're seated as an altar. You can make an altar in your heart this morning. But you can give those things to God and ask him to pour his grace into those places to meet the deep longings of your heart.